0: I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot back behind Sun Studios, and I'm getting ready to go in, and I'm gonna record some songs tonight. I'm pretty excited about that. There's gonna be a TV crew there filming it. I guess uh, they have a thing called Sun Studio Sessions, and whatever they film on me tonight will be turned into a one-hour TV show, and will air on PBS stations across the United States sometime late in 2015. So keep an eye out for that, I'm kind of excited about it, but for now I'm just sitting here in the car, waiting for the tour groups to leave and chance for me to go in and sing some songs. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my car in a parking lot behind the legendary Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. Everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Jay McDowell. Jay is the Multimedia Assistant Museum Exhibit Curator at the Musicians' Hall of Fame and Museum here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about the Hall of Fame at MusiciansHallofFame.com. A lot of you guys may know Jay as the bass player in br 549 he toured all over the world with them he's a great bass player great performer and he's even a better guy i really enjoy being around jay but he got this job at the musicians hall of fame and he gets to be around some pretty amazing people and some some legendary instruments i i it's one of my favorite things here in nashville is visiting the musicians hall of fame And if you're in Nashville, I highly recommend that you stop in. This is just one of the best stops. And if you're listening to this show, you're the perfect person to stop in there and you will appreciate all of the things that they have there at the Hall of Fame. But I wanted to do a show for quite a while where we talk about some of the musicians who are in the Musicians Hall of Fame. These are some of the people who have played on these legendary recordings that we've heard all of our lives, but maybe we didn't know their names. And uh, I figured we could tell a few stories and shine a light on these folks. So I decided on this show, we're going to focus on the Hall of Fame members who played with Bob Dylan in his Nashville recordings. Jay McDowell was nice enough to agree to come on, and we recorded this at the Musician's Hall of Fame, and he's going to share a few stories here, and I really enjoyed it, and I think you guys will too. There's Jay McDowell.
1: It's always funny to me that and I get asked about Bob Dylan a lot for for different things, whether it's the museum or, or my past and you know i'm a forty five year old it's It's all before my time, but I know that Bob Dylan was largely responsible for a big part of the studio boom that happened in Nashville in the late sixties uh, when he came here and started recording a lot of studios started popping up, and it it i've heard from more than a few sources that, that you can kind of link it to Bob Dylan coming to Nashville. And he was recording in New York, typically, with uh, at the Columbia Studios in New York with Bob Johnston producing. And the story goes that Charlie McCoy was on one of those sessions playing uh, different instruments as Charlie McCoy does. Uh, he's known as a harmonica player, but he would he would play bass, he'd play guitar, he'd play vibes, he'd play trumpet, he'd play trombone, whatever the The session needed. He could jump up and and fill the shoes. And the story goes, Bob said, hey, to Bob Johnson, hey, Bob, why can't we get more more guys like Charlie McCoy? And Bob Johnson said, if you want more guys like Charlie McCoy, you need to come to Nashville because we got a lot of guys like Charlie McCoy. And that was what sparked it. And so it was the Blonde on Blonde sessions. I think they did about five or six sessions in New York for Blonde on Blonde. And... Uh, typically, they would do 20 takes of Visions of Johanna or 15 takes of Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. And um, it seemed like each session was working on one song. And after they did five sessions, they come to Nashville, they come to Studio B, at the, which was owned by Columbia, here on Music Row. And then you look at the session notes, and it's like they're doing five songs a session. They're doing six songs a session. They pretty much did... I think four sessions here in Nashville for Blonde Unblonde and um, not only uh, seemed to finish up the album here but it seems like the the songs that they were doing the multiple takes of in New York they would knock out in one take in Nashville and, and it was uh, uh, seemed to, to spark him and he ended up doing four albums here so uh, Blonde Unblonde, John Wesley Harding Nashville Skyline and Self Portrait well done here. Charlie McCoy played on so many sessions, but he also had his own band, the Escorts. Uh, they played here in Nashville. And he put out his own records as Charlie McCoy and put out a ton of records. It seemed like he was cranking them out. Of course, in that era, that was not uncommon to, to put out four records in a year. That was kind of standard. Um, and he was he was doing that. He was cranking them out and... and charliemccoy.com. He'll be happy to sell you those (laughs) records and I recommend them. They're all good stuff.
0: I think I remember reading that Bob Johnston had introduced Dylan to Charlie McCoy there in New York and he just happened to stop in the studio and Bob had one of his records. It was kind of an obscure record at the time and he was surprised at that. And then Dylan asked him to, you know, well, you want to play on something? There's a guitar sitting right there and they whipped out desolation row and he kind of mimicked Grady Martin nice. yeah. from El Paso and Desolation Row.
1: Stuff like that adds up for Charlie McCoy. I mean, he he was he was just on a ton of records and there were uh, stories. Charlie told a story about him being double booked and he had the Dylan gig. And, the, and when Dylan would come to town, they'd do long hours at the studio. So there was, I've heard this from different musicians involved with those sessions, that there would be times where they'd show up for their booked session and Bob would be writing and the guys would end up hanging out, reading books or playing chess or whatever uh, they did to the kill the time, waiting for Bob to to get inspired. And so there are times when Charlie would be booked for other sessions and have to go. And so I, there's we got a picture up in, in display there uh, with uh, Fred Carter playing Charlie's bass with Dylan, and Charlie Daniels is in that photo as well. We also have a trumpet that um, – Charlie played on Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35 I think that's the full title but uh Dylan wanted something like a uh, Salvation Army band and he was kind of kind of thinking out loud apparently that you know we need a trumpet player and a trombone player and Charlie the way he tells the story is so if it's like a Salvation Army band he doesn't have to be a good trumpet player right <laughs> <laughs> so, like I could do that, and so Charlie did he played, and there's a lot of stories of him playing the bass and the trumpet at the same time on that session now uh he Charlie really is strong to deny that for that particular song, but there is uh stories of him playing two instruments at time- playing harmonica and the bass at the same time and pulling that off or or playing uh playing the trumpet in the bass. And he certainly can do it, but according to Charlie, it wasn't—it wasn't on that session that he did that. But he—but he did play the. Um, and what was he told the story about the, the guy, uh, playing the bass drum, for that laying down on the ground and and, you know, take after take, and he was just laying there playing the bass drum.
0: <laughs> Didn't Dylan want him to play it like a marching band yeah, drummer? Yeah,
1: sloppy yeah, drums. yeah, right. So they, I think they went in with the approach of a sloppy, like it doesn't have to be. Height and and you know they wanted it to be kind of loose and uh, it came off that way and, but that. It, it it works <laughs> yeah it definitely definitely works and but yeah that's you know the the instrument that Charlie McCoy is always associated with is harmonica first and foremost but but as we uh, you know we at the at the museum we really uh, do kind of treat the the Bob Dylan stuff you know as special and and we have so many items that are linked to uh, to Dylan, in the, the cases, it's it's interesting to me that you know, Blonde on Blonde is, is the example I always use. I feel I feel like we have almost every instrument that's on that album. You know, obviously we we don't have every instrument, but we got the core of it. So so Hargus Pig Robbins, uh, again a go to session guy, uh, played piano keyboards and he was uh, again on you know used on so many country records that a lot of the times when the rock and rollers would come to town they wouldn't expect that these guys would be versatile enough to play rock and roll and, and so you know there's always that kind of sideways look i feel like at the national musicians but uh they would always be quick to say you know hey we we did Brenda Lee records we did Roy Orbison records with you know the A-team guys were were versatile and and, and obviously they could they could hang, and they could do their jazz stuff, and they could do the rock stuff. But the story I've always heard about Pig Robbins was uh, that occasionally Bob would ask Bob Johnston to adjust something you know, the piano player was doing, or change a part, or something, and and Bob Johnston would say, "Well, he's right there. Why, you know, you you can tell him." And Bob's response was, "I just can't call another guy Pig." But, <laughs> that, you know, that was a. Uh, something they had to get around, but,
0: uh, so the piano on blonde on blonde is the same piano and the same player that played, uh, behind closed doors. He stopped loving her today. Stand by your man. Stand by your man. And you guys have that piano right here in the museum.
1: Right. And we have, we do have, uh, one of the pianos that were used at RCA studio B and one of the pianos that was used in Columbia. However, they rotated the pianos, right. You know, the country music hall of fame also has a piano that was in Studio B and also have a piano that was a Columbian. So it's hard to say like this is the piano that was on Blonde on Blonde. But it's it's one of the pianos that was in rotation there at the studio. So and that's another thing that is it's hard for these guys when they play on they're playing every day. They're doing sessions every day. Sometimes it's stuff we've all heard, sometimes it's songs that never even get released. And when they play something that is such a part of our lives and such a big deal, it gets to be pressure for them that they can charge more as a studio musician and they, their rate goes up and everything, but that doesn't guarantee that you hiring them is going to make your song the next big, you know, that it's not going to be take this job and shove it. And I I hear that from these guys a lot of times, that it, it was nice and it, it helped them, have comfortable lives to, to be able to work and to, to be able to do that. But uh, Larry Nechtel was one of those in L.A. Who, who also played a lot of different instruments, but he played and arranged the piano part on Bridge Over Troubled Water. And after that, he'd get hired for those things. And people would be like, hey, we, we need something big and over the top and, and grand. And it was hard to repeat that. And, and not every song that he was hired for fit that bill. And, and people would hire him specifically to make it Big and dramatic and over the top, and
0: uh, it it, helps if you start out with a song as great as Bridge Over Troubled Water.
1: Yeah, exactly. That that yeah, there you go. That's that's a big part of it. But uh, you know, our whole purpose of the museum is to bring recognition to these guys who didn't get the recognition. And as they tell you, hey, our recognition was in our paycheck. You know, like we got paid. You know, let's face it, to sit around and play music all day, we got paid a good wage. Now, it can sometimes seem like a crime that. Uh, uh, a song may have sold 8 million copies and we got our typical union scale and that can seem like a crime but as they said, the other 6 days of that week that they worked, none of those songs sold 8 million copies and they still got their union scale and they were able to feed their families so. uh, Kenny Butchery was a great drummer uh, played on a lot of different stuff through the years and that's the recurring theme of our museum is you start seeing the same guys that that and the versatility and the different stuff they're on so the drum set that we have of Kenny Buttrey's was on the Dylan Sessions in Nashville I believe he was on all four of those albums he played those same drums on uh, the the album Harvest by Neil Young and the drum set is pictured on the back cover of Harvest. The drums were also used on Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. The story that always sticks out about Kenny Buttrey and Dylan was the recording of Lay, Lady, Lay, where he was getting ready to cut that song, and Kenny wasn't sure what Dylan wanted, what direction he was going with that song. And and he went to Dylan to say, what should I play on this? Meaning, what style? Where do you want me? Is this a straight-ahead rock song? Is it... Is it a shuffle? Is it a swing? You know, that, that was kind of the, the meaning of his question. And Dylan said, why don't you play bongo drums? And that wasn't what he was asking. He was like, I don't, uh, oh, what? And, <laughs> and then, uh, so he went to the producer, to Bob Johnston, and asked him the same question again, meaning what style do you, want me like, you know, thinking I'm going to play my, my kit, but what style do you want me to play? And he said, I'll play the cowbell. And again, that was not what he was thinking. Like, like, So at this point, he's like, okay, so I've been told bongos, I've been told cowbell. So I'm not sure what to do. And so he had bongos and he had a, I guess he had a cowbell, but he didn't have a stand for it. Billy Swan, the singer Billy Swan was in the museum. And uh, he, he told me the story of Kenny getting the janitor to hold the cowbell while he played the bongos and the cowbell. And the janitor at the time was Chris Christopherson.
0: Now, as if there wasn't enough talent in the room. Yeah, right.
1: Right. The guy cleaning up, right, was was Chris. And now, again, there's seven sides to every story, as I'm finding out in this job. uh, When I've talked to Chris Christopherson about that, he says that's made up. He said he was the janitor. He was working as the janitor there, but he he said, ah, he said I would have remembered holding a cowbell <laughs> on Lay Lady Lay." He said, "I I don't remember that." But again, that's another fascinating thing about this job is you got you know people's memories work that way and and you know i i can pass on the stories that i've been told and of course the stories are going to morph as i tell them even and and everybody gets gets little things wrong but you know you start getting these stories about who played on what song and and uh, how they start conflicting and and then you start getting people that kind of start squabbling about it. like oh he doesn't know he you know like i know who was in the room when that when we played that and then you know they can be absolutely certain of their memory and then be proved wrong and you know that that joke about how Pretty Woman by Rory everson had 85 guitar players on it, apparently, because <laughs> there's been that many people claiming to have played the guitar on Pretty Woman. I've also through research and that kind of stuff seen that, uh, there can be, uh, you know, it can be innocent where somebody claims to have played on this song or that song. And then, then you find out that, Oh, okay, well, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, they cut a certain song in Muscle Shoals and then they cut it again in New York and then they cut it again in LA and then they tried it in Nashville with all the top guys. So in their memories, yeah. Oh, I played bass on that song when it came out in their memory. They did. Cause I remember cutting it. It may not be the version that finally came out that we all know, uh, but there could be five guys claiming to have played bass on that particular song. And they, they aren't necessarily wrong. They do. They do remember being in the studio with them and cutting it. Um, but that, that's one of those things. And, it's all uh you know there's there's studio logs, but those can be fudged too, and you start finding that out you know that you, you know this famous story about Hank Garland, the guitar player who was in a car wreck so so Hank Garland was another great session guy here in Nashville, and played just on tons of records, and he was in a car wreck, and uh, they kept adding his name to the session card, so he'd get paid the union fee for years after he couldn't play guitar anymore and uh so he you know he received a steady paycheck for a long time and that was just you know out of loyalty from the different guys here in town that would you know look out for him and his 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 wife and uh he was still alive all those years he just you know, he couldn't couldn't play
0: so. that says a lot about the the music community yeah. in Nashville yeah at the time absolutely
1: and so Kenny Buttry, uh one of those guys that uh played uh, with neil young for years uh had you know had a good steady gig with with neil and traveling but also did the sessions and
0: i do love the fact the same drum kit was played by the same drummer on lay lady lay heart of gold and margaritaville yeah. and a ton of other songs that you know have right. moved on. and uh and you have that kit here at the at the museum, when I walked up to it and saw it for the first time, I I nerded out pretty good. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's 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 one of those. Uh, I mean, we we put them out as as we get them, you know, the, and we don't try to clean them up or fix them up, you know. If, if we get an instrument, we we display it the way we received it. And Kenny's bass drum has an old, nasty, yellowed pillow in it, and it's it's one of those pillows where it's been duct taped in the past and the duct tape's been ripped off of the pillow and it's just it's nasty and ugly but that was the pillow he used to dampen the bass drum and so we you know had that in there and uh i remember i remember a woman coming through the museum complaining about that you're like oh (laughs) you you know clean that clean that up you know and and my thought was no that's that's the real thing you're you're not gonna hide that It was a case where, uh, so Charlie Daniels comes from North Carolina, and yeah, he always had bands and, and was always a performer and always doing his own thing. But when he came to Nashville, he uh, was pursuing that. But but yeah, he he would take sessions when he could get them, and he always talks about how uh, the his experience with Bob Dylan really kind of validated him, and and he he felt like he was close to a point where, you know, at some point I got to give up and go back home and, you know, this isn't for me. How long do you expect a wife and family to put up with this kind of thing if you're not having any success? And he definitely felt at that kind of crossroads and got involved in the Nashville skyline recordings. And um, as Charlie says that he was booked to do one session and again, Dylan had it. I think maybe had it booked for all three sessions that day at the studio. So the morning, the afternoon and the, and the evening one. And so Charlie did his session and then was packing up his guitar to leave before the second, you know, like at lunchtime basically. And, and while he was packing his guitar up, Bob Dylan said to Bob Johnston, Hey, where's Charlie going? And he said, well, he's not booked for the next session. We just had him for that song, you know, for that last session. And and Bob said, no, I want him to stay. And, and that, that by Bob saying that and as Charlie says, where Charlie could hear it, it wasn't you know, that wasn't in another room that that uh, that, that that gave Charlie the confidence to say, hey, I can hang with these people and I, I am involved in the right in the right thing here.
0: And you have a telecaster here that you
1: We did. We now yeah, we we did have that telly that that was him pictured in, but but Charlie just traded that out uh with us and he gave us his 1959 Gretsch chet atkins model that he had custom ordered in white that's a really good story too so in 1959 charlie went to his local grocery store and placed an order through Gretsch guitars to order this chet atkins guitar and typically they were the orange the the ones i always kind of associate with eddie cochran or the orange fat gretches but he wanted it to be white so similar to a white falcon but but uh so it's got the, the gold trim. Anyway, he had his name engraved on the fingerboard and he paid extra to order that custom color and and with the name on the fingerboard. So again, you know, I always pictured like Charlie going in and getting a bag of grits and a box of grits and a loaf of bread and a 59 Gretsch. So he got the guitar and he played it uh, for a couple years. And in 1961, uh, apparently he was loading up after a gig and left that guitar in the case sitting in the parking lot and of course, when he went back for it, he drove away. And when he went back, it was gone, and he never saw it. He he knew it was recognizable, so he thought it might turn up someday, but never never did turn up. And then in the eighties, he got a call, and you know he was world famous by then. Everybody knew Devil went down to Georgia, and this guy asked him, "Did you used to own a Gretsch guitar?" And he said, "Yes, but it's you know been years." And he says, well, I've got this. He said, I'm repairing this old Gretsch guitar. And the fingerboard came off. And underneath the fingerboard, in the wood, I can see where it looks like it had a fingerboard in the past that had your name on it. I could see the markings in the wood that say Charlie Daniels. And I'm thinking, there could be another Charlie Daniels. But I'm going to ask this Charlie Daniels. And sure enough, that was the guitar. So obviously, somebody had gone to the trouble of hiding that. You know, they changed out the pick card. Not not the pick card, the fingerboard. Painted it, and you know it, it was a mess. So Charlie got the guitar back in the eighties, and through Gretsch's help, they refurbished it back to the way it was. Put his name back on the p- fingerboard, and then uh, put it back to the white, you know, white shape it was in. And uh, so yeah, we have that on display now, and it's it's a striking guitar. And the best thing about it on on the curator side of things is we have a great picture of him younger a younger Charlie Daniels playing that guitar with his band. Uh, I think they were called the Jaguars. Well, uh, Pete Drake, his big contribution. The first thing that always gets mentioned is he came up with the talk box. He wanted to use the steel guitar as a tool for people who couldn't speak. So to, to be able to plug into this box and put a tube in your mouth and, make the shape of what you're trying to say. And when you pick the string, the the vibration of the string generates the sound you're making, but your shape of your vocal cords or the shape of your, your mouth, uh, you know, can make it sound like you're, you're speaking. So he had the talking steel guitar. Now he did have some, some country hits with the talking steel guitar, you know, the instrumental hits. And it's hard to say they're instrumental because they're singing <laughs> through the guitar, but, but you know what I'm saying? And then, He played, yeah, he played on uh, Lay, Lady, Lay, and he played on uh, uh, those Dylan sessions and always worked steady. And when the Beatles broke up and it got time for them to start recording, George Harrison was making All Things Must Pass, and he wanted Pete to come over to England to record, wanted Pete to be on the records. Pete was reluctant to go. He didn't, you know, he... He had a good thing going here and, you know, like, why should I go over and not be home? And, you know, he says he went back and forth with his wife about it and and finally decided to go. And then the bridge of that story is that Peter Frampton was on those sessions. Peter Frampton, that's where he was exposed to the talk box. And, you know, the irony that now more people know of the talk box from Peter Frampton records than... (laughs) from Pete Drake records, but <laughs> but that was the connection there it was It was kind of linked to the George Harrison section, so Joe South is always associated with Atlanta, more than Nashville, but uh, he did spend time here he 's another fascinating guy because people you know the music nerds know of Joe South as uh, he wrote the song, "I beg your pardon, I never promise you a rose garden." He wrote, he wrote Down in the Boondocks that was a big hit for Billy Joel Royal. He wrote Hush that actually Deep Purple had a big hit with. He wrote um, Games People Play. He wrote the song Games People Play. And and he had a hit with Games People Play as a singer. He was the guy. And uh, so people are familiar with him as a, as a singer and a songwriter. But he played on uh, Simon and Garfunkel Sessions. He played on Chain of Fools by Aretha Franklin. Uh, if you hear Chain of Fools, there's a whole opening Guitar intro thing. That's it's. It kind of sounds like somebody noodling around on a guitar, uh, and then it goes into what you recognize. You know, typically on the oldie station, you just hear the the cold open of the song, without that. But uh, but that's Joe South playing his '57 uh, Gretsch, and we have that instrument here as well. We have the old Gretsch that he played on on all those records. But one of those uh, sessions he did was he played that guitar on the uh, on "Blonde on Blonde." And, uh, as far as I know, he wasn't on the other three records that were cut here in Nashville, but, but, uh, but blonde and blonde, he, he was on some of those sessions.
0: Do you have any idea if Dylan knew who he was before this or?
1: I don't know. By the time we got to Joe South, we interviewed him some, but he was pretty sick and he, he just, he didn't have the energy to talk much about stuff. And and when we, when, if we pressed him about that stuff, cause we were curious about the Dylan stuff and we were curious about the old stuff. He would give us that you know hey that was 45 years ago I don't know I don't you know I don't know it's and, more
0: precious and special to us than to the yeah, person that did it
1: yeah yeah exactly and that's that's the case with with him and he and he was he was very gracious to us but uh, yeah any, anything specific he was just yeah, I don't know I don't know but no I, I don't know uh, not, nothing sprang to his mind when that came up uh, and I don't know
0: would
1: hey Bob let us know now.
0: I think I read somewhere that um, Bob Johnston or somebody started ripping out the baffling in the studio and caused a big uproar. Right, right. Yeah, because I,
1: I mean, I'm, I'm just putting myself in that position of like for that particular project, oh, I need it to be this. I'm, I'm going to adjust this room. And then right, the people that are coming in tomorrow maybe don't necessarily agree with that, and that can cause an uproar. However, I have a feeling Bob Johnston at that time to do pretty much what he wanted to the room and get away with it but but
0: uh the columbia was probably cutting some pretty good sized checks right there yeah yeah
1: exactly and 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 it's fascinating to me uh where uh where it is on music row there uh that those two studios uh there's the the back parking lot and you know the stories that that i hear from the guys where, uh you know guys would come in off the road and have a session booked and so they would just you know, might you might come out in the morning, and Marty Robbins would be getting up from being asleep in his car, and stretching there, and getting ready to sing, and those those kind of stories. And and, and it's still that way. The, the guys you see in the back alleys there in Music Row, that you know, you never know who you're going to run into, whether it's uh, people you recognize, or, or you know, or is that a homeless guy? You know, it's it's <laughs> it's the whole gamut. Uh, and and that was certainly true back then uh, as well, with with all the the recording happening and and all the the business happened in there. The, the whole story, you've probably covered this with some of your other guests on here, but the whole story about the, the Bradleys moving from downtown and building the studio and take, I think it was a thousand bucks they paid for a Quonset hut from the government. And they set that up behind their house there. On, you know, So the original studio was in the house that was closer to 16th Avenue and they cut Bebopalula there, they cut uh, Johnny Burnett stuff there, they cut Johnny Horton stuff there. Uh, Buddy Holly recorded there. Then they bought this Quonset hut and put it up. And they originally built it to be a television studio. So that in their minds, we'll keep recording the audio in the house. And then we'll build this barn, this Quonset hut behind the house to shoot. And they got a deal with the Opry to do some... I think it was like armed forces network stuff to do Opry shows. So as opposed to filming at the Ryman, which they couldn't, you know, it was a lot cheaper if they did it offsite. Uh, you know, they, they, so they started shooting some old color film and there's some great color that film beautiful. stuff. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Al Ganaway stopped, shot a lot of that stuff and it was, it's just so good. And, and I, I'm thankful that we have that as a document to, to be able to see, you know, it's a, it's just a, a bonus that it's in color and it's good quality footage, but to be able to hear those guys playing in their prime and hear it live. um, So that, so that was the thing when they played those shows, they were like, we really like the sound in this room. They weren't expecting the sound to be an upgrade from their existing studio because it was a Quonset hut. And they, they kind of looked at it like, Oh, we can use this in cooperation with our recording studio. And, And, and then as, as it ended up, they started recording the stuff. So, you know from Patsy Klein to uh, Jim Reeves stuff to uh, Marty Robbins Brenda Lees stuff was cut there and uh, and all that stuff uh, so so they were talking late 50s, early 60s and uh, that that was happening and uh, Decca had a studio and Fred Foster had a studio and there there were you know there were studios around Nashville but but before the Bradleys it, you know a lot of guys went to Cincinnati to record it wasn't Nashville wasn't the studio yeah. capital. And uh, you know, because of the Bradleys starting and having success, uh, you know, some of the other you know, then then they sold that to Columbia and that, that became Columbia Studios and then they built made it A and B. RCA had their studios going, DECA had their studios. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't like a studio everywhere you turned like it turned into.
0: Dylan had to have been you know, he was a fan of B Bapalula sure. and stuff like that. Do you think he had any idea of some of the stuff like that that was actually recorded in Nashville before he came here?
1: That's a good question. I I wouldn't be surprised if he knew that kind of stuff because I would think he was a big fan of it, like we all are, and would have wanted to know that stuff. But I but again, I, it's hard for me to put myself in. You know, now especially with the internet, it's you know we can, we can turn on our phone and find out where was Bibi Babalu recorded. But
0: but it's a lot harder back then. Man, to it find was hard stuff. It,
1: it, and it made it funner to search it. Because when you found out those little tidbits, it was it was exciting. But but that that was the thing where I, I felt lucky was when I got done playing with uh, BR549 and wanted to stay in town. And, and we were with Sony Records, which was housed in that building where Columbia is. And they let me have an office, and I treated it as an 8-to-5 job. And my office was in the art department, which was in the Quonset hut. So I went there every day, and I was sitting there thinking, Man, this is, you know... And so I, I spent my time trying to figure out the layout of the studio from the old pictures they had. And, and so this is where the booth was and this is where the singers set up and this is where the bass was. And I would go around to the different uh, cubicles around my office. And uh, it's ironic now because now that they've redone the studio and opened it back up, now I spend my time in there trying to think, now where was my office and where was this cubicle? <laughs> it's flipped completely backwards on me now. So I get a kick out of that.
0: The idea of him working in Nashville seems like the perfect marriage to where he seems to be one of these guys that wants to be spontaneous and yeah. not think it over too much. And the session players live in a world where they do everything first or second take, right? And uh, just go for it. Yeah, that seems like a great marriage. Yeah, I can't
1: I can't say that any better. <laughs> right, right. That that was the uh, Dylan seemed to be real comfortable here with the, with the people and and with the surroundings and uh, Mike Curb said it really well when he he talked about because Mike Kerb has invested in these old rooms and, and uh with Studio B with RCA Studio B and, and now the Quonset Hut and, and trying to get them built back, you know, as much as they can like they were originally. There's there's different codes now and different hurdles that they have to face and there's and some of it's monetary, some of you know just the wood that was used in, in some of those rooms uh it just you know they couldn't get it exactly but But as he put it was, when it comes down to it, it's not necessarily the walls and floor that made those records. But the people involved were what he started realizing made up the studios.
0: I really love coming here to the Musicians Hall of Fame and and looking at the instruments and all that. But to me, it's the same as going to the Baseball Hall of Fame and seeing Jackie Robinson's jersey, seeing Babe Ruth's bat, you know, I can swing that bat, but I can't swing it like Babe Ruth did. And uh, if I see Charlie Daniels' Telecaster, I can play the Telecaster, but I can't do what Charlie Daniels did with it. It makes me feel a little bit closer to the people who actually made those records.
1: Right, right. And I'm fascinated because I'm a such a musicaholic, music nerd. I don't know what the, <laughs> the, the worst term is, but, uh, you know, all of our lives we've been soaking up this – reading liner notes and, and digging these records. And, and at a certain point, they, the records themselves are comforting to us, but it's almost like you come to a place like this and you can get more out of those records you love. Blonde on Blonde is a perfect example. That's a record that I've worn out through the years and I love that record and I hear it. And, and then you then because of the internet, you, you have access to the, the outtakes from it and different bootleg things that have been out there, of uh, different cuts that weren't on the record and it's, it's like you soak that all up. And then at a certain point it's like, well, there's nothing else. And then you start finding out about the players on it and you see these instruments. And, uh, to me, it's, it's, there's something about that, that it kind of, I hate to say completes the experience cause you never want it to be complete, but to, to be able to, to learn more about it and, 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 uh, and find out, then you start finding out those facts about, wow, that same drummer is on these records. And, and, uh, you know that same piano player played on all these records, so that's that's one thing that I'm proud of about the museum that that we can can educate people and entertain people. Uh, it's also a bit sad to me that, that these things are behind glass and not used like they can still be used. So it always makes me feel good when some event's happening, and this does come up fairly regularly that one of the guys will call up and say, "Hey, can I use you know can I use my Telly for this show coming up, and we're like, "Yes, that's it's good publicity for us, and it's it's the way it should be. They should be able to use these instruments, and so we're, we're always happy for that to happen." I
0: appreciate you chatting with me, Jay. It's good to see sure, you again. You too, I appreciate you sharing some stories and mm-hmm. stuff.
1: Thanks. Keep up the great work. I always love listening. I love you, man.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Jay McDowell for inviting me over to the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. And you can find out everything you need to know about the Hall of Fame at MusiciansHallofFame.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records you buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message we'd love to hear from you, just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.